You're listening to TIP. On today's show, I bring back Chad Carson to talk about how his real estate strategies have been doing during the pandemic, as well as opportunities that he sees moving forward. Chad was our first ever guest on this real estate podcast and has several other titles under his belt entrepreneur, real estate investor, author, and teacher. Chad also hosts the Real Estate and Financial Independence Podcast. I'm excited to bring back Chad, or Coach, as a lot of people call him. Not only was he our first ever guest on this podcast, but he has also been the most downloaded episode on the show. And it's for good reason. He is able to explain real estate concepts with clarity and in an easy-to-understand way. And he also approaches real estate with a very level head and takes a logical approach, which I think is super helpful for beginners in a world where a lot of people are trying to get rich quick. Now, without further delay, let's get into this week's episode with Chad Carson. You're listening to Real Estate Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your host, Robert Leonard, interviews successful investors from various real estate investing niches to help educate you on your real estate investing journey. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Real Estate 101 podcast. As always, I'm your host, Robert Leonard. And with me today, I bring back Chad Carson. Welcome to the show, Chad. Good to be here, Robert. Thanks for having me back. You were the very first ever guest on this real estate podcast all the way back on episode one. It's almost hard to believe because we're on episode 56 already, and a lot has certainly changed in the world since then. For those who don't remember your story or didn't hear that episode, tell us a bit about yourself. Yeah, it does seem like a long time ago, but congrats on the 56 episodes. And for those who didn't listen to that one or don't know me, I live in Clemson, South Carolina, and I've been investing in real estate for 18 years now, which is kind of hard for me to believe as well. Uh, right when I got out of college at Clemson University, I started investing. I thought it was a temporary thing. I thought I would do it for a couple of years, learn a few financial tricks, and hey, I'll, I'll use this the rest of my life and I'll get a real job. Well, it turns out I like being, what, what do they call this? Like voluntarily unemployed, being an entrepreneur. You know, like banks consider me unemployed because I didn't, as a young 23 year old, here I am trying to flip houses and wholesale properties and eventually start buying some rental properties. But I, I really love the excitement of that and the challenge of being an entrepreneur full time. And I was fortunately in the place in my life where I didn't have any college debt because I had got a, a scholarship to play football in college. So that was, that was helpful. Also had support from family and people kind of knew that uh, other resources and people who were in the business. And so I just decided to take off while I was still single and live out of my car if I needed to, if things didn't work out. And yeah, the rest is history. I've done a lot of different things in real estate, but primarily single family houses, small multi-unit properties in and around my area of Clemson, South Carolina. How'd you get started when you just came out of college? What was the first things you got into? Did you become an agent? Did you get into rentals, flipping? Where'd you start? Not get my license right off the bat, although I think I would if I had to do it ever again. I just think that's a good route to get started. When you need to make money, having your license is one way to get paid. So why wouldn't you do that? That's my opinion. But the way I approached it was more about just being a wholesaler. So I was finding deals for other people. I would get them under contract and I didn't have a lot of money, really any money. And so I had to go to other people who could buy the property and either partner with me on the deal or more commonly, they would, they would buy the deal. They would keep it as a rental but then I would flip the deal to them basically. So I might make 2,000 bucks, I might make 5,000 in a really good scenario of 15 or 20 grand. 
And that was my kind of first year and a half or so. But then that uh, put food on the table. It allowed me to learn the business. I was really good at finding deals. I kind of picked one little slice of the business and got good at that. And fortunately, that was a it's one of the more difficult parts of the business, as you know. And so by doing that, I could then expand from there. And I, had a, I have a business partner who, who's been my business partner now for about 18 years. And we started kind of partnering together. Neither one of us had a lot of money at the time, but we figured out ways that we would split up the task and we would start flipping houses where we would go out and find a private lender, somebody to loan us money on the property. And then we would buy it. Instead of assigning it to somebody else, we would buy the property, manage the remodel project. And so that was kind of the evolution. We were always flipping houses for the first three or four years just to make money because we didn't have any reserves. Didn't We really couldn't keep properties and have enough down payment money for rentals yet. But that was our, our way of getting started. You mentioned that you're mostly focused on single families and small multifamily, but you've been in the business 18 years. From who I've talked to, that's typically pretty unusual. I think a lot of people as they've been in real estate for so long, they tend to get into much larger deals, syndications, 100-unit apartment complexes. Why have you chosen not to go that route? I think it fit more of my, my goal, my lifestyle. And, I, and I, I did try to go that route a little bit. My, my business partner and I, in 2007, we, we went to seminars. We, it was equivalent of reading Bigger Pockets and listening to podcasts back in the day, where we would, we would find other people who were really impressive. We're like, wow, they're doing hundreds of deals a year, and they're flipping houses. And syndicating and doing all that. For a year there, we, we tried to ramp up what we were doing as well. And we invested a lot of money in marketing. And we were pretty successful on the whole. Like we, we had some people working with us and had a little team and we had people buying properties for us. And we had, I think, 39 closings in 2007. And some of those were multiple properties. So we bought some multi-unit properties to keep. We flipped some, a lot of properties. So we made some cash flow. We made uh, some, good, some good rental buys. The problem was at the end of the year, we, we kind of stepped back and I credit my business partner with this more than me. We both sort of reflected on what we were doing and we were busy and we were making all this progress and money. But we asked ourselves, like, why, why are we doing this business in the first place? Like, we, we kind of lost sight of what we were trying to accomplish and whether this mechanism of going big really helped us accomplish what we wanted. And we actually did an exercise where we wrote down on a piece of paper, each of us, you know, what are the things that matter to us? Like, what, what would we do if money was not an issue? And I wrote things down like, I would like to play pickup basketball in the middle of the day for two hours. And I would like to go out in the woods and hike and walk around. And uh, once I met my wife, not too, or we got married that year. In fact, when I had discussions with her about it, we wanted to travel abroad. We wanted to kind of take long, slow trips to Latin America and to Spain and take siestas and have, enjoy life a little bit. And I'm still kind of go-getter, a mentality type person. But there, there was the balance of that. And, and, and what, what I found when I wrote that list some of those involved money. I did need money, but much more of a restriction was how much free time and flexibility did I have. And so for me, t- dialing back the business and making sure the business is kind of the servant to your lifestyle and what your goals are and not the other, other way around became the priority for us. And so I'm not saying you can't syndicate and have 10,000 units and be, have lifestyle as well. But what my experience has been is in that pursuit of grow, 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 bigger, 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 bigger. You lose a lot along the way. And yeah, if you're really ambitious and you do really well, and in five or seven years, you sell out and you make about your millions of bucks, then you can enjoy the rest of your life, right? Well, that, that rarely happens exactly like that. And a lot of people who do that end up saying, I would rather go do a, start another business than just sit here and do nothing. And so I, I think the, 
going back to like the main point of this was having fewer properties, smaller properties that are more flexible, that are a little bit more consistent and not having to get big and have different structures and raise money from lots and lots and lots of other people. Keeping it simple and just doing that repeatedly kind of fit our lifestyle when we reverse engineered it. I think that's one of the reasons why you and I have such a great relationship and why we have such great conversations because we both think that way. And for me, that's been a big shift because when I first was graduating college, all the way growing up through high school and even in college, I just wanted to be a billionaire. That's all I wanted. I think we've talked about this. I just wanted to make billions and billions of dollars. I wanted private jets. You know, I wanted all of that. And then I stumbled onto you and we started talking and even just life in general for me has evolved. And I just realized that it, that's not necessarily what's important to me. And, and there's a lot more to being able to do what I want with my time than there is just having all the money in the world. We talked about it before we started recording today. I'm going back to racing motocross. It's one of the things that matters to me. And if I have a billion dollar business that I'm running, I'm not going to be able to go ride dirt bikes every day like I want to. You know, and there's a fine line. I mean, it's not like we all have a recipe that works for every person. Like the recipe for Robert Leonard is a little bit different for Chad Carson. And every listener on this call is going to have a little bit different recipe for what that investing business looks like. And, you know, there's some people who are going to be able to manage the grow big and have 10,000 units kind of stuff and still do all that. And that's great. But I, I just, I guess my message that really resonated with me, and I think a lot of other people think the same way, is that try to have the smallest business necessary and the simplest business necessary that accomplishes your life goals. And whatever that is, build it. If you get bigger than that, just at least acknowledge yourself that this is just an ego thing, or this is just me wanting to like compete with all these other people. And I just want to win. Like, that's cool too. Like if you just want to win and be the best and be the biggest, like fine, but just don't frame it as that's what you need to do to have this lifestyle, to live this amazing life. Like you do not need all that. You can have eight properties or three properties and live an amazing lifestyle, make a big impact on your family and your community. And that kind of go smaller, go home message is what I think more people need to hear instead of the other way around. If you decide you want to win and compete and be the biggest, that's what you're deciding what matters. So you're just you're making a conscious decision to decide what matters to you and what do you want to spend your time doing. And in that case, that's what you chose. Exactly. And the same thing for me is like simplicity. That's so important. It's it's doing what matters, but also just simple is so much less stressful. And for me, like I was the type of guy that would if I could earn 50 bucks by opening a savings account and depositing a thousand bucks, I would go do it. And for me, it's just like, that's not worth it to me anymore. That simplicity is just, or the complexity there is not worth it. I like simplicity. And it's the same thing with you know building a business. Yeah. Behind the scenes of businesses and of real estate, I think is not talked about enough. It's not, it's not as exciting to talk about the bookkeeping systems and the administrative stuff and the people you need to hire and the, the issues you're going to have with human resources behind the scenes of a big business, that's not as exciting as, hey, I built this you know, big multi-million dollar business and I'm making all this revenue. But you know, there's always fires and there's always complication behind the scene. And if, if the business matters to you, and this goes back to why you're doing it in the first place, if it's accomplishing your goals and it's fun, like you'll, you'll deal with all those little things behind the scenes. But to your point, like that complexity and that, those aggravations behind the scenes, if you're doing it just for a temporary high, like it's just like you get your little dopamine fix by going a little bit bigger. Yeah, that's not going to last. Like you got to you got to build something that because it's not it's not as easy to get out of a business or get out of a real estate property as it is to get into it. And so you got to be real thoughtful about that and not outrun your your motivation because then you get stuck with something that is like an albatross around your neck and it's it's, it's weighing, weighing you down and it's keeping you 
for decades maybe from doing things that you thought were important when you were younger and now you're not doing them. You are one of the few people in the real estate space that I've talked to that actually also believes in stock investing. Typically everybody in the real estate space is, you know, tisk tisk to stock investing, but you're one of the people that aligns with me and that you should have exposure to both. So you'll you'll understand my my next analogy, but it's the same thing for stock investing. I used to love picking every single individual stock and I still do that, but I've done it a lot more simple. I do a lot of index funds now and I just pick companies that is a more simple process for me. Like I'm not chasing Tesla. I'm not chasing GameStop, which is going crazy right now. Like I'm not going out after all these super complex option strategies that a lot of millennials are after. I'm like really focused on simplicity. What's really going to align with my core values and, and doing what matters for me? Yeah, I'm, I'm certainly in the same philosophy. I've learned a lot from your philosophy and what you teach about balance and different types of investing. And I, I, my, my own stock investing strategy is primarily in my retirement accounts. That's kind of, and for me, like I just want to kind of set it and forget it. And so I, I would love to own one, one index fund and, that, and that's it. Stock investing for me, just in my order of priority, is like the next level, kind of the backup to the backup. Like my real estate's first, or maybe my kind of entrepreneurial ventures when I'm doing them. That, that's kind of the first level of income, and then real estate income, and then the wealth that the real estate's growing. And then for me, stock investing and maybe some other type assets eventually are a diversification. And so if, if that's the priority of those, then I really don't want to spend all my time messing with them and balancing them. And the simpler that can be, the better. And it just it actually turns out, I mean, you'll probably can speak to this better than I can, but most of the statistics I've read that that actually is probably going to be better in the long run anyway. The performance of your basic little index fund without you messing with it is going to do just as well. And you're going to have lower fees than any other strategy. And I, I kind of take good consolation in that, that, that the simplest is also pretty effective. From conversations we've had both on the podcast and offline, I know that your portfolio has a bit of exposure to student rentals and just a little piece of Airbnbs. Those are two parts of the real estate market that have probably been hit the hardest from COVID. How are you managing students not being at school? Did you have a lot of students breaking their leases or just not renewing them? Well, we, we do have a lot of exposure to student rentals. That's a big chunk of what we do. It's not 100%, but it's over 50% of our, our real estate investing rentals. I'll tell you, back in March of 2020, I was a little anxious. I was, you, know, my, you could ask my wife. She would say, she went to the store. Like, we're, we're good. Like we have, Our income's fine. But I think my reflexes that when things go bad, I'm like, Button down the hatches, bring in the, you know, save every bit of cash you can. Like I was kind of, got a little irrational at that moment. And I was just telling my wife, you know, don't buy that $100 thing at the store or whatever. And I was just take it easy. And it was because I was a little worried that what I had is something we hadn't seen before all over the economy, but just particularly with student rentals and college rentals, you know, are are they going to come back to school? Like just is, if people are 100% online or 99% online, will they come and rent an apartment? Which is what we do. We rent apartments to students. That was an open question. And I was, my business partner and I were, were kind of worst case thinkers when it comes to investing. All right, how much cash are we going to have to save if nobody comes back to school for the next 12 months, starting in August? That's what we started thinking about. And we actually went through the exercises of, okay, all right, we're going to, maybe we can rent 25% of our units just to some people who are local investors, but we're going to compete with everybody else who's also doing that. And so we were just doing some, some really like negative cash flow scenarios thinking about how much cash we need to set aside. And that was a pretty harrowing kind of future exercise to think about. At the same time, none of that turned out to, to be the case. The way it actually happened 
was Clemson University, where I am, was sort of a hybrid example where they they did have they asked students to come back. They had some labs that they they could do safely. They did in person, but from talking to a lot of our tenants and, and professors here in town, almost everything's been online, and yet most of the students still came back. And I don't know my, hypo- my hypothesis is that a lot of them came back because they just want to get out of their house from their parents, and maybe their parents could afford to let them do that. They still had enough money to pay for bills, or they had some reserves, or they had a job that they still were working. But we really didn't have the impact. We lost some, vac- we had some vacancy, we lost some rent. So it wasn't like 100% as good as it could have been. But I mean, in the big picture, it was nothing close to what we thought it would be with student rentals. Uh, but it was, a, it was a harrowing kind of experience in that it makes you realize how much exposure you have. When you have a negative situation like that, you realize where your vulnerabilities are. And that's, that was one of ours. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey guys, about a year and a half ago, my wife and I got married and one of the most stressful parts of our relationship has been trying to join our finances together. We all know that money issues are a leading cause of divorce, but Monarch, the top rated personal finance app, has built in collaboration features so that you can invite your partner at no extra cost. Together, you can see all your finances, collaborate on your budget and get insights on your cash flow and recurring transactions. It's the easiest way to manage your household finances. Unlike other personal finance apps that we tried, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch is obsessed with constantly improving the product, and they release updates every two weeks and allow customers to submit suggestions, vote on requested features, and view the product roadmap. Most importantly, they never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying out Monarch for myself, my wife and I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners on this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com MI. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y.com slash MI for your extended 30-day free trial. Go to monarchmoney.com MI for an extended 30-day free trial. Do you guys ever feel overwhelmed with all that's going on in the markets and feel like you just can't keep up with the day-to-day news headlines? Today's show sponsor, Yahoo Finance, is my go-to solution to keeping up with today's top news and stay informed with what is happening globally. With Yahoo Finance, I'm able to see the biggest trends and biggest movers in the stock market, what is happening with interest rates, major geopolitical events, and much more. If it wasn't for Yahoo Finance, I would have no idea that Tesla is laying off 10% of their staff or why iPhone shipments are down 9% year over year. Yahoo Finance also has a number of other cool features, including a tool that lets you link in all of your investment accounts, analyst ratings and independent research, as well as the ability to create customized charts. Yahoo Finance is one of my favorite tools I use in my investing toolkit, and it's what I use each morning to kick off my day and stay in the loop with what's happening in the markets. Join more than 90 million monthly users today and get comprehensive financial news and analysis at yahoofinance.com. The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Today's show is sponsored by public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate out there, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So 
If you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing, 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024, and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing member of FINRA-SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into a partner bank where they can earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com disclosures slash high-yield-account. All right, back to the show. When March hit, thankfully, my portfolio is not really exposed to student rentals or Airbnbs. It's pretty stable for the most part. So when March hit, I personally wasn't too, too concerned, but there was a few people that popped right in my mind. You were one of them because of your exposure to student rentals. Kirk Duplassus was another one. I know he has some exposure to Airbnbs and just a couple other investors that I know personally that have some exposure to Airbnbs. So you guys were definitely... I was thinking about you guys as, as that all was happening. I was curious. I couldn't wait to catch up with, with everyone to learn about you know, how things were going. So it's really interesting to hear how it's all played out. The important thing for me now is that all right, we've gotten through this. Don't let, don't let that kind of experience go to waste. And so it, it sort of accelerated some of my thoughts about diversification, which has always been a philosophy of mine. But you know, real estate's a big, slow-moving ship. For better or worse, you, know, you don't just press a button and tomorrow you can diversify between 75% US stock and 25% international. Like it's pretty, pretty easy to do that with liquid assets. Real estate takes a little bit more thought and thoughtfulness. And it's always been in the back of my mind and my business partner's mind that we want to spread out a little bit. And we, and also just not have all of our, even within our own market, you know, our, our non-student stuff did great. Like, and in, which is really interesting, a lot of our lower income non-student stuff did really, really well too. So it just shows you like there's different times, different situations that are unpredictable and different parts of your portfolio are going to do better than others. And you want to diversify in as many different ways as you can, location, economic level, source of income, like don't get everybody who works in the same factory or everyone, everybody who goes to the same school. And then, but for us also just asset classes, you know, let's get, let's get a little bit more exposure to different types of assets, including equities, as we just talked about, you know, listening to the investor podcasts, they've, they've got me a little bit on the Bitcoin train. So I'm, uh, I'm not going to go all, all in on that, but I'm, I'm, I'm getting a little bit. So I'm, I think, I think it's smart to, to have exposure, the more larger your net worth is, especially to try to diversify some and not have one thing can, can take your ship. Yeah, I have to say, I got a little bit lucky. I had Preston Pish and Pomp, two powerhouses in Bitcoin, in the Bitcoin space on the show, on my other show, Millennial Investing in March. It was convincing enough, both the conversations. Those two guys are so brilliant that I decided to allocate about 1% of my portfolio to it. Super small. Again, going back to simplicity, I didn't want to worry about it. I didn't want to lose sleep at night. I believed in it because of what they told me, but I didn't know enough to really go all in. So I put 1% of my portfolio, but I got it at like 4,500 or so. So today it's, it's done great, but again, small, small piece of my portfolio. You can sell it to people like me who bought it at 34,000. So there you go. There was already a trend to online learning for colleges and now COVID has accelerated that. And I think the future of online learning or just on-campus learning was just a little bit unclear. There's so many other avenues that people can use to learn. People might not be going to college as much. How are you viewing student rentals long-term? And you just mentioned diversification. So are you looking to sell some of your student rentals and get into different types of assets? 
So I'm still long on my college student rentals, in particular, the college that I'm at, Clemson University. I think, I think colleges are going to be pressured. In-person learning is going to be pressured. It's just like everything that technology is affecting. Like, I don't think anything is immune from the way technology is affecting things. And online learning and technology, the fact that information is free is, is definitely going to impact it. But I think there's still value and there's value in relationships. There's value in learning face-to-face. I think there's value in kind of coming of age experiences. There's even, you know, and, and I think the network effect of just relationships and people is really hard to underestimate. Like I'm in, a, in the state of South Carolina, for example, Clemson is a, is, is a really good school. Some of the top academic performers in high school try to go there. It also kind of nationally has become more like that. And so if you graduate from Clemson and you get into whatever profession you are in, in South Carolina and around now more around the country, you have connections with these people that mean more sometimes than the actual stuff you learned in school. And so I don't know what the value of that is, but it's, it's made me think about like why university is valuable. Is it, is it worth the prices that it's pointing to? Like, I don't think so. Like, I, th- I think universities are going to have to innovate and that's a good thing. And they, they, they're being challenged. But I, I think so. I'm, I am selling some properties in, in a small way, but it's not because of I'm not excited about colleges anymore or my college in particular. It's more what we talked about earlier. I just think we all need to have some diversification and we need a little bit more of that. And it's also just, we've, we've got a, done a constant process of pruning our portfolio every year. I got this from John Schaub, who wrote the book, Building Wealth One House at a Time, where he would look at his portfolio every year and rank them based on several criteria that are important to him. But some of those cash flow, wealth building, but also just hassle and are there big maintenance issues and things that are recurring on this property. And so you call your herd a little bit by selling off some of the ones that are the bad performers, or maybe we don't have a lot of bad performers now, but just not your best. And so selling that and maybe doing a 1031 exchange into a new construction property or something different, that's kind of what we're playing around with. So we're dabbling in a little bit of new construction rental. We're doing some uh, lending to other investors who are in a little different niches than we are. Uh, So I think all of that's part of our plan for the reason we're distributing some of our, our capital to different places. One of the other interesting dynamics with your student rentals in particular, I think with Clemson is the athletic program that's there, both mostly football, but others as well. I think if you have colleges that have no athletics or not superior athletics, I think those colleges are going to perform differently into the future than a program like Clemson, who has a top tier football program. You know, I think people are going to be drawn to Clemson for athletics and for various other things that you mentioned. Whereas with schools that can't offer those and are strictly just going for education, I think those two types of colleges are going to fare different. And I think you're going to be on the better of the two sides with a school that has great athletics. Yeah, there's no doubt. Clemson's been positively affected academically because of their, basically the marketing of the, the football program. And that, that helps a lot. It is if you think about it, they get paid to promote their school. It's a pretty ingenious way of, uh, <laughs> you know, of, of bringing in your top academic people as well. And it's, it's something that's not intuitive all the time. Like, hey, why was football? Why would football help the chemistry department? Well, actually, uh, at least in Clemson's case, it has helped if you market it well. And uh, Davo Sweeney, I'm a, a fan. I played football at Clemson, and I think they run their program in the right way. Like, if you if you make sure your players graduate, you make sure they try to set good examples in the community. Like, you can use. Football is like one thing, but life and these life lessons that these players are getting can be a, a model and kind of a, a part of what Clemson tries to market itself as. So I, I think that's universities are turning it more into businesses. They have to be that. They have to raise money. They have to promote themselves. And so football and athletics are one way to promote. I mentioned before, you also had a small exposure to Airbnbs in your portfolio. 
I've heard from some investors that their Airbnb properties have done great. And from some articles I've read online, other investors aren't doing so great and they're getting pretty crushed. How have your Airbnb properties held up during the pandemic? Yeah. So last time you and I talked, I th- I th- we had two Airbnbs. One is actually just my basement apartment. <laughs> so we have a apartment that I, I felt like going back to simplicity was just extra space. My wife and I talked about it and I used to have my office down there. We moved lived to an 1100 square foot apartment in Ecuador for a year and a half. We came back to this place that was 1900 square feet upstairs and had a 700 square foot basement apartment. And just felt like, why don't we just do something with this? And we remodeled it and rented it out. And it was just happened at Clemson because of the football games, you could do an Airbnb rental where 80 or 90,000 people come into town and they, they swap all the hotels basically. And so people want to stay in Airbnbs and we rented it like that for a year. Well, it just so happens that there were no football or there were football games this year, but not, they limited the attendance and there was not the same excitement. So our Airbnb in our basement sat vacant the entire year. We didn't, didn't get any rentals. It's our house, so it's not that big a deal. It's kind of supplemental income. But in, in other cases, actually, we have a, a manager who manages our Airbnb rental for us. He has other properties on the lake and out kind of in the woods. Those have done better than they've ever done. So people, I think it's been the local retreat type thing where people can't fly somewhere else. They can't go across the country. So they're looking for novel vacation experiences where you can be sheltered in place. And my, all the, my friends who have had those type of Airbnb or vacation rental by owner type things have done better than they've ever done. Stay, keeping things full all the time. And so I just, that's, again, that's another interesting thing. Who would have thought? Like, who would have known the impacts of a pandemic on vacation rentals? And that's mine has done horribly because it's a game day entertainment based rental. The vacation go off on your own in the woods kind of things have done amazing. And so I don't, I don't think you'd want to have all one or the other. You'd want to have a little bit more exposure to both. I think a lot of people think of Airbnbs and they just instantly think of downtown New York City Airbnb or. Chicago or Denver, whatever it might be. And those Airbnbs are probably struggling a little bit, if I had to guess, just because of the location. But if you get to the types of Airbnbs that are less susceptible, I guess you could say, to COVID, you know, out in the woods, those types of things, like you mentioned, I would gather that those will probably continue to do well. Yeah. I mean, but it's interesting, like the, the beachfront properties. So, I mean, so they're doing well right now because people go to the beach and hang out and walk on the beach by themselves. But then you have a hurricane and what happens to those? So, I mean, it's just, it is it's such a lesson. Like as, as this, this whole experience to me has been sort of like a real life wake up to like a Nassim Talib type lesson, you know, just of the black swans, but also unpredictability. And just, you cannot predict this game. I mean, th- this thing is, there's too, it's too complex of an equation. So the only logical approach is to be anti-fragile, is to not, not, you know, build your finances, build your business such that you can respond to all sorts of different things. You can have a low center of gravity and move different directions. And I think that's another reason for being small, like our conversation earlier. If you get so big and grow so fast, you are actually very fragile because your cash flow is being reinvested in things. You're probably not as, as, uh, as well capitalized, or sometimes that's the case. And, but you're also focused on one destination. If you can't be nimble and move around like a lot of small investors can, you can be this type of thing can wipe you out if you're in the wrong, happen to be in the wrong part of the economy or the wrong thing that happens. How are you approaching Airbnbs going forward? As you diversify your portfolio, are you considering adding some more of them? Maybe. Yeah. This kind of fits in with my overall strategy that my business partner and I are trying to do. Like our personal time is maxed out. Like I do my own podcast. I make YouTube videos. I teach classes. I love doing that. I have a local nonprofit. I'm kind of getting interested in doing some more like social businesses locally to see how I can 
can help there with my own community. And then you add that to my family and kind of normal stuff, like I'm maxed out. Like I, I really don't want to you know, go do a lot of my own time in real estate investing businesses. So I would be open to doing Airbnb and other things if there's a, a, a partner on the ground. Like I, I want somebody who owns that deal and then we'll be the lender or we'll be the limited partner with that person. And the same with flips, the same with even student rentals these days. We, we're kind of shifting our mentality a little bit to be the, the venture capitalist of the real estate, our little real estate world, instead of being the person receiving the venture capital, which we were for the entire time of our business before. And it's, it's, to be honest, it's a new skill set. I'm having to learn a lot. I'm having to take courses on that, on being an asset manager, on thinking, how do you evaluate people and how do you evaluate the deal from that perspective? And how do you manage your portfolio from that perspective? And so that's been kind of fun just to think about it, to think about the different types of investments like Airbnb, but more that's important. But I think the person themselves is like, that's my first, I'm a, I'm a relationship business driven person. So I, I want to know, I'm going to invest in that person. Are they going to be trustworthy? Are they going to do what they said they're going to do? Because really, if, if we hit one of these weird things where you know their Airbnb gets wiped out for six months, like I want to see how they're going to respond when that happens. Are they going to quit and just leave me with a bag? Or are they going to actually like follow through and be flexible and we have to ship their payments? And that's the kind of person I'm looking for because that's what my business partner and I were for our investors back in 2008 and 9. Like We didn't panic. We were, were nervous that the economy was changing, but we communicated with our investors. We stuck with it. We shifted our strategies. And so for those of you out here there who are borrowing, looking for money, you've got to demonstrate that you're that type of person to an investor. And if you do, you'll get as much money as you need, really. That's all actually really valuable for me to hear right now. I haven't raised any money yet, but I think I might start to in the next year or two for some of the deals that I want to do. Again, I'm going to keep it simple. So I don't want to be... I'm not going to make it super complex. I'm not going to get into massive syndications, but I think I'm going to start doing some more JVs and joint ventures for those who don't know what a JV is, but on a smaller scale with with outside money. So those are, are really important and valuable pieces of advice for, for even me personally and for anybody listening that is going to go down that same route. We've talked in the past about how, and we mentioned it a little bit earlier, about how we both tend to try and look at real estate investing similar to how Warren Buffett approaches stock investing. Typically, it's a little bit more conservative and always with a margin of safety. I know you also tend to not have a ton of debt on your portfolio. You mentioned that to me, I think, in our last episode, and that was even before the pandemic. How do you think these types of principles and strategies have helped you weather the storm that we've experienced from the pandemic? How do you think they'll help you as the real estate market evolves after COVID? I think just that mindset of value investing has been one of the most helpful frame of minds that I've, I've had. I mean, I've studied all sorts of different investing practitioners and teachers. I often come back to Warren Buffett. It's not that he has direct lessons on how to buy a property in a duplex and house hack something. Like that's Every once in a while, he'll write about that in the annual letters, which I think is kind of cool. He'll give an analogy of buying a, a farm and how that compares to buying gold and how much better a farm is than a gold investment. So like he does talk about it. But I think just if you look at some of the core principles of Warren Buffett, but also other long-term thinking value investors, they focus on risk and making sure you don't lose. Like that's, that's Warren Buffett's number one rule of investing, I guess, is that you know, what's rule number one? Don't lose money. What's rule number two? Don't forget about rule number one. And so that, that can apply in a lot of different ways. And in real estate, I think it, the number one thing, I, the way I've seen people go out of business is their financing and their cash reserves. So like, let me explain each of those. The financing, I, I had a couple of people I knew, know who went out of business in 2007, 8, and 9, that same time when we were kind of having to go through a lot as young investors. 
And the reason they did was they had financing that had terms that required them to have to go get more financing right in the worst recession we've had in a, in a generate long time. So if you had to look at some principles of financing, like the best kind of financing you can get if you have to get it is long-term fixed financing. So if you can get a 30-year fixed financing at 3% right now, and you're a young investor who's growing your portfolio, like that's smart. Like that's really good. And I think you should do as much of that as you can within reason, within your, your game plan. And so we have done that. Like we've had no problem getting financing like that. In fact, we still have some seller financing at low interest rates and some, some other private financing. So like that's part of the story. The other part though is if you're going to use some, some debt, some leverage, you've got to have a really resilient cash position. So we've tried to maintain a lot of cash and that really served us well in 2007 and eight. We had to lean on that because we made so many mistakes leading up to there. We had to actually eat into our reserves to pay for repairs that we underestimated, to pay for negative cash flow on some properties, to pay for turnover. So that's, it's those unknowns that cash really comes into play. And so if you combine that, you can use some safe leverage. You can use, have some cash set aside, a good, good, robust cash reserves. Those are kind of the application of that lesson for me, for Warren Buffett, to have that kind of worst case scenario first outlook. And then if you do that, I think you're going to be anti-fragile. You're going to be able to be resilient. And over time, like my goal has been to pay off some of that debt as well, just because why, you know, why try to keep growing? Like why not pay off some debt? increase your cash flow, reduce risk even more. I guess I'm just saying all that. It's like, I am low debt philosophy, but we definitely have debt. And I think Warren Buffett is good. As, he's used leverage his entire career. He used float from insurance, which was a very low risk form of leverage, kind of like a 30-year fixed mortgage, you know, like that as a really low risk form of debt as well. And so it's, it's, not, a, it's not a bad thing to use it. It can just having a healthy respect for it and knowing that it can take you out if you're not careful. I think is the approach that Warren Buffett would advise. I think that's probably one of the biggest things that new value investors misinterpret about Buffett. And I'm speaking from experience here because this is exactly what I did was when I started studying Warren Buffett, I thought that I needed to pick stocks like him and find exactly how he analyzes financial statements and do everything that he's doing exactly how he is to be successful like him. And then as I've studied him more and evolved and talked to people like you and learned on the podcast, I've realized Buffett is a lot more valuable to us as his principles than he is learning how to pick individual stocks. And so I think if you can take what Buffett teaches principle-wise and apply it to your life, I think that's a lot more impactful than it is to just copy his stock picks or how he runs his business or whatever it may be. I agree. And I was listening to a recent interview. I'm trying to remember who, who was talking about it. It might, it might have been on the Investor's Podcast, but it was talking about what, is, what makes Warren Buffett beyond just the what we just talked about, the risk averse and margin of safety. He's also has a lot of lessons for us as real estate investors from just how he works with people. Like he runs this big conglomerate. He outsources and trusts people with their with the responsibilities that they have as a run, when they run the corporation. And so that's kind of where we are now too. Like, all right, if we're gonna loan money to somebody, if we're gonna invest in them and their business as this operator, we've got to trust them. Like we need to pick only people who we who we have very, very good trust. We feel comfortable that they will do what they said they're going to do, that they're competent, that we don't have to watch every single thing they do. That yes, we look at the financials and make sure things are working, but like that's a recipe for building a really good business is that human human kind of trust, like that the speed of trust, the way that valuable that is. That was a lesson that until this year I really didn't grasp from Buffett. And yet it's maybe one of his most impressive feats is to be a delegator who surrounds himself with really credible people and then entrust them with 
his responsibilities with his capital and says, hey, go do it. And those people tend to rise to the occasion if you pick the right ones. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey guys, the Range Rover Sport leads by example. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability and combines assertive on-road performance with the signature Range Rover refinement that you'd expect. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet and redefines sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, which offer new levels of comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit-like driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning Pivi Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can also enjoy a dynamic drive in total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate out there, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing, 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024, and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing member of FINRA-SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into a partner bank where they can earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. US only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? A free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. All right, back to the show. People always think of Buffett as a great asset allocator when it comes to picking stocks, which of course he is. Look at his track record. But outside of that, he's a great asset allocator when it comes to people and those types of things as well. And that's not necessarily as considered for a lot of people. They don't think of that as being an asset allocation, but it it really is. Yeah. Being a judge of character and being able to weed out the ones who eh, probably shouldn't mess with that person, shouldn't, shouldn't do a deal with them. And then when you do find the ones who are like gold, invest in that person. And I think about that, whether it's a contractor, like 1% of the contractors you work with are just 
awesome. And you need to just go with that person and stick with them and pay them what they're worth. And same with property managers, same with tenants. You know, tenants are, you can look at them a lot like an employee, like a, you know, they are the people who are the most important part of your business. If they, if they can be a, a self-managing person, somebody who can, who's responsible and pays their bills on time and can handle, like you can even give them lists that here's my plumber, here's my electrician, here's this person. If something comes up, just call the, call this name. And if, if something weird, you can call me, don't worry about it. But like, if you have a responsible tenant who wants to stay for a long time, they could be there for 10 years. You could make a lot of money. They could be very happy. They could self-manage themselves a little bit. And that could be, everybody could be happy. Like, isn't that amazing? Just by empowering that person and, and giving them a property that allows them to, to do that. There are a lot of people that listen to the show that haven't bought their first property yet, but they're eager to, or they're still relatively new. They've acquired one, maybe two properties. How should they be approaching this market? Should they consider sitting on the sidelines a bit longer to see how things play out? Or is now still a good time to get started? I think it's always a good time. I think there are ups and downs in terms of how abundant opportunities are. Like if you were investing, if you just happened to get in 2008, 9, and 10, you just got lucky. Like, what? good for you. You know, like there was just an amazing number of deals. But, you know, every, the rest of history, you know, like you're not always going to have those opportunities. And so I'm more of a dollar cost averaging within real estate philosophy. Like, I, I just think you should always, always be buying and you can be more strict on your criteria. You can be a little bit, you know, like right now, we're not really that excited about buying anything new, but if a great deal in our market or another market plopped down on our, on our desk, we would look at it. Like we're always a buyer because we would just sell something else. Like we, we would sell this other property we don't like as much and replace it with this one. And so I think, we, I think if you're a new investor, the key is to get really clear on a couple of things, your target market, like where are you investing? Where's the place? And try to focus as much as you can. Don't try to be really broad with that. Get really, really focused on one area that you can learn and be, and be very knowledgeable about. And then within that market, try to focus on one strategy. Like if it's house hacking, go with house hacking. If it's buying a turnkey rental, buy a turnkey rental. If it's whatever, if it's a live-in flip, do the live-in flip. But get really good at that market. Get really good at that strategy. Focus, focus, focus. And what you'll find is that when you get that focus, opportunities start showing themselves. That's just the nature of it. And I, I really do believe this, that I, although the markets change and there's competition, there are always opportunities if you keep looking. There's always another deal. And the reason that's true is because there are a lot of people who are just looking and kind of sort of in it. But if you're all in, if you're committed, if you're willing to buy, if you prepare yourself to buy, there is, there's going to be another deal. You might miss one particular deal, but there's always a next deal and then another. And so just take that attitude that you're, there are opportunities out there and always be buying, have your criteria set, then now's still a good time to buy. It's, it's, I don't think that's going to change. For a new investor that is just getting started with rentals specifically, what are some of the most important numbers for them to be aware of and make sure that they fully understand? Which ones do you personally focus on? I think the most important number in real estate for rentals in particular is net operating income. This is, if you were a stock investor, you would get really good at looking at the earnings of a company and how those earnings are related to the price of, the, of what you're paying for a company. Well, in rental properties, the net operating income is just, you can think about it like the profit and loss of a rental property. You're taking the rent, you're subtracting all of the operating expenses, and you're, you're leaving out the debt for the time being, not including how much your debt's going to cost. You're just looking at what is this property by itself without any capital allocated to it yet? How much income does that property produce? That's such an important number 
because even if you're not in a cash flow type market in quotation marks, like if, even if you're buying in a, a growth market or one that don't, they don't produce a lot of cash flow, that rental income is what you use to pay your mortgage. That's, that's important. Like that's how you survive. That's how you can hold through different markets. And so knowing what that, really closely what that net operating income number is, if it, let's say it's a thousand bucks a month, you have 1500 in rent, you subtract all your operating expenses and you have a thousand left over. You now know that that thousand dollars is what you have to use to pay your mortgage, to pay yourself any cash flow. And that's as important as it gets in rental property investing. You can get complicated and throw all the other things out there. But if you just look at that number, you can then add in your financing costs and you can add in your cash on cash return goals and all that. But it really just starts with that kind of basics of cash flow on a rental property. When you think back on your life, whether it be personally or business related, real estate related, what piece of advice have you received that has really had an impact on you and you continue to use it and think of it to this day? Man, that's a good question. I think I'm John Wooden, actually, for, for whatever reason. He's a, he's a basketball coach, Hall of Fame basketball coach at UCLA back in the day. I've just always been impressed with his approach to success. He defines success a little different than I think people think about it these days. You know, the, the Instagram, social media kind of success and driving the cars. For him, he was a really successful, by out, outward standards, uh, basketball coach. His teams won more games than almost anybody in his era. Like they, I think they won eight or nine out of 11 national championships in a row. They went like a couple of years in a row, never losing a game. Like that's, that's unbelievable. Interesting thing was his definition of success never had anything to do with wins or losses. If he were a real estate investor, it would not have anything to do with building wealth or do, you know, making money. What he focused on was the little things, just the, he would have his, his players come into practice before a season. About a day or two before they start practicing, he would have them practice putting on their shoes and tying their shoes and putting on their socks. And so I think that story, that piece of advice of like, just put on your socks, like just tie your shoes and like do that with excellence. This also reminds me like the ancient Greeks, like uh, Aristotle had, and the other kind of philosophers back then had an idea that human excellence, they called it arete, was what it was all about. Like that was the best, the most important thing. If somebody lived with arete, if they tied their shoes with excellence, if that happened to be the thing they had to do, if they were a janitor and they swept their floor with excellence, they were a real estate investor and they bought properties with excellence, like you have no, nothing else is really guaranteed except for what you give to that situation. That lesson to me, when I, I mean, both when I heard it from John Wooden, when I've heard it kind of echoed through other wisdom, like the ancient philosophers and different people, and it's just really had an amazing impact on me because it's so widely applicable. Whether you're a parent, whether you're an investor, whether you're a football player like I used to do, I mean, it's, it's just, you're here on earth. What are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with this opportunity you have? And so that's kind of been a core philosophy, uh, an aspiration for me. I'm not saying I, I'll always do that, but uh, it's been an aspiration to see, all right, let's, how good can I be at being Chad today? Like and doing the best I can, put my shoes on, tie my shoes the best I can, and then move on to the next thing. And one of those reasons why in Wooden's example, putting your shoes and socks on is so important is because if you don't do those things right, correct me if I'm wrong, Chad, but I believe this is his philosophy is if you don't do those two things right, you might get a blister, you might roll your ankle, something might happen in practice, and then guess what? You can't practice. And if you don't practice, you're not going to perform well in the game. Or you might get hurt and you can't even play in the game. So if you don't start by doing those small things right, you're not going to get to even participate or do the end goal. Exactly. Yeah. It's just like the little things are everything. 
you can take that in two, two different ways. You can be obsessed and always worried about all the, you know, everything all the time, or you can just say, I have an opportunity in this moment not to worry about tomorrow, not to worry about yesterday. This moment is what matters. Like, how prepared can I be? If I'm going to go buy a property, how prepared can I be? Like, I have control over studying my market. I have control over doing these things. And that's really what it comes down to. Like, there's some things we can control. There's some things we can't. Going back to your beginner real estate investor kind of mindset right now, should I invest right now? Should I not? We have no control over the market. The Federal Reserve and what they do, we don't have any control over that. Whether the coronavirus vaccine works in a month or nine months, like, we have no control over that. We do have control over, though, some things like our mindset, our attitude, how we approach the situation. And those little things lead to big things, both negative and positive. You know, the blister, if they put their shoes on incorrectly and they put their socks on incorrectly, they do get a blister and they do best practice and they are now performing at 80% of their capability in a game instead of 100. And guess what? They're not going to win games and they're not going to win championships now. And so it all comes back to that. That's it's really everything. This is how you approach whatever role you have in life with excellence or not. And the good news is like, you could have screwed up everything up to this moment, but you now have the opportunity right now to try to do it with excellence right now. And that's, to me, is really hopeful, really encouraging because it's, it's, a forward, it's a present moment looking, but it's also you learn from the past, but you don't have to dwell on it. You don't have to say, kind of keep beating yourself up about it. It's like, all right, right now, what can I do? How can I move forward? How can I be better? And that's the kind of lesson, you know, I think about this as a parent, like, what can I convey to kids? Like that's that's the kind of thing that I hope they take more from my example than the words. They're not going to listen to what I say, probably. They just kind of turn that off. But if you can try to be that way the best you can, your kids maybe pick up on that a little bit. Chad, thanks so much for joining me again here on the show. For those listening that are interested in learning more from you and want to connect with you, where's the best place for them to go? Everything I do is kind of housed at CoachCarson.com. That's my website. I have a podcast called the Real Estate and Financial Independence Podcast. So I'd love to, if you like podcasts, we'd love to hang out with you on there. Kind of a close friends and partners here with Robert. We've exchanged, you know, send people back and forth. And I think it's, if you like his show, hopefully you'll like a lot of what we talk about on the show each week. Some of it's me talking. I do some interviews as well. Lately, I've been doing a lot of like just looking over my shoulder as I coach a new investor or a, a intermediate investor, kind of how to do the next step and a real deal. And um, so we just have a lot of practical fun and focusing on financial independence, on real estate. In addition to the podcast, I do a YouTube channel and I'm kind of focusing more on that too. More for the kind of tutorial type stuff. If you want to like look over my shoulder and you draw out how to, how to analyze a deal or do something, that's more my approach on the YouTube channel. But whatever, whatever works for you, I'd love to, to hang out with you. Just search for Coach Carson and you'll, you'll find it. Chad's absolutely right. If you guys like our content here at TIP and here on my show, I know you'll like his as well. So I'll put a link to everything he's working on in the show notes so you guys can go check that out. Chad, thanks so much. I enjoyed it. It's always a pleasure, Robert. Thanks for having me. All right, guys. That's all I had for this week's episode of Real Estate Investing. I'll see you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.